All right, I want to welcome you once again to September 6, 2020, Sheep Gay Fellowship Sunday Service. Wherever you are, I hope that you are well and you are safe and you are healthy and that you are or will be, sorry, blessed this afternoon as we come together in worship and around the God, around God's Word. This is a new month. Uh, we just completed, of course, the month of August where we examined the figure of scripture known as Daniel. And today we move and draw our attention to the New Testament uh, where we will begin a four-month series on New Testament figures, ending, of course, in December, appropriately, I think, with the figure of Jesus Christ. Today, we begin with Peter. Right? And so this month, we will examine four sermons on the life and ministry of Peter. Of course, one of the prominent, if not the most prominent, disciple of Jesus Christ. So together, let's turn to Luke chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. Now, this is a sermon series, that a four-part sermon, ser- sermon series that I have uh, preached uh, before at uh, retreats and other events where we talked about di- different things, but it's a sermon series I like preaching, um, namely because uh, Peter has been quite influential in my own life. It's part of my own testimony, my reading of scripture, and coming to faith. Uh, but secondly, because I think there's so much to draw from comparatively as well as uh, relatable relatability to the life of Peter and the call of Peter. And today we're going to begin with that exactly, um, which is the call of Peter as a disciple of Christ. Uh, what is muddy uh, in sort of our historicity in the Christian church and the faith is we don't know when the disciples of Christ came to faith. We don't know their conversion moments, so to speak. Um, and that's not important. I think that's yeah, that's given way too much emphasis in the church. Um, it's not a bad thing, but it's given maybe too much emphasis than it needs. And so as we look at these four sermons, uh, try to draw away from, uh, I guess things in, in, in our faith, in our walk, in our, in our discussions um, that are sort of commonplace. And let's focus on what Scripture is teaching us in regard to Peter. And I think there's a lot of parallel in our own life that we can draw from. that will help us uh, to understand some components of our own faith and our journey with Christ. And what I hope and pray is that it will lead you uh, into not leading, living a life like Peter, um, but living a life in pursuit of the same thing that Peter pursued. I think that's more important, right? We don't want to be the figures of Scripture other than Jesus. We don't want to be the figures of Scripture. We want to be uh, only only uh, relatable in the sense that we're pursuing the same thing, right? So let's draw our attention to Luke chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. Luke 5, 1 to 11. Uh, there are variations of this story, of course, found or narrative found in the other Gospels. Uh, but I find this one to be, uh, you know, uh, simple enough one to preach from but also one that has enough detail for us to be able to read from. Now, Luke, of course, of the Synoptic Gospels, gives us a lot more in-depth detail into certain aspects because of the fact that he is writing a thorough report to the man Theophilus, right? And so we can draw a little bit more from it. So let's look at Luke 5, 1 to 11. Let's read. I will read. You can follow in your Bibles. First 11, 11 verses of chapter 5. This is what the Word of God says. Now it happened that while the crowd was pressing around him, that's Jesus, and listening to the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. And he saw two boats lying at the edge of the lake. But the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. And he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out, uh, sorry, put out a little way from the land. And he sat down and began teaching the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered and said, Master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing. But I will do as you say and let down the nets. When they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish and their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat for them to come and help them. And they came and filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw that he fell down at Jesus' feet, saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. For amazement had seized him and all his companions because of the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not fear. From now on you will be catching men. When they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Amen. The word of God. Our unreached people group of the day comes from India today. They are known as the Dobi. There are 965,000 of these people in India, and we like to pray for their salvation. For none are Christian, all are Muslim. We're going to pray for the Dobi in India. Today, I also like to pray for uh, the safety 
of uh, a group of people. Uh, I don't know if you've forgotten about this, but there are protests happening right now, uh, not in America, but in Hong Kong, right? And so there are uh, unfortunate uh, realities that are happening over in Hong Kong and with the release of the movie Mulan, there's obviously a lot of things that are coming up and uh, a lot of tension is, you know, shifting back and forth from a lot of um, injustice that is happening in the world and uh, however you want to define that. Uh, but we want to pray beyond that at, for our advocacy as the church is primarily and has always been the safety of people and for the salvation of souls. And so that's what we pray for. We're going to pray for the Church of Hong Kong. We're going to pray for the salvation and the preaching of the gospel of the people of Hong Kong, um, you know, finding justice in this world uh, from a governmental or political position will do nothing for your salvation. What will help you in the end is ultimately only found in the gospel of Christ. So well, that's what we'd like to pray for today as we begin. Uh, I also like to pray for the word and the sermon series this month to speak to you and hopefully convict you and compel you and move you towards living a life for Christ and in pursuit of Christ. Let's pray together. God, we thank you so much. So we begin a new month and we begin a new sermon series on the life of Peter, the ministry of Peter, as influenced and convicted by Christ. We pray, O oh Lord, that thou, those same convictions would be upon our own heart, that our following of you, Lord Father, would come at the cost of everything. Heavenly Father, we pray for the Dobi of India. We pray for the 965,000 people who are lost in idolatry. We pray, O oh Lord, uh, that salvation would come their way through the means of gospel preaching, through the mouths of Christians, both in and outside of India, that missionaries and Christians and the church in India would be bold preachers of the gospel. God, we also pray for the protests that are continuing and happening in Hong Kong and the realities of lives being lost, taken, mistreated, God, we pray um, that the concern of the church, both here and in Hong Kong, would be the salvation of people and the preaching of God's word and your gospel to those who need to hear it. God, we pray for them, for their safety and their health. All this, O oh Lord, we pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. A lot of unfortunate news these days. Um, a lot of sad things in the news. Um, but if you look around, there's still good things happening and uh, little glimpses of heavenly realities all around us. And so, brothers and sisters, in time of darkness, it is always important that we always, always focus on the light. John 1 teaches us this. Second Samuel 22, 29. You, O Lord, are my lamp. Let's always remember that. There's a movie I really like. It's a movie trilogy. It's called The Matrix. Um, it's weird. It's very unchristian, if anything. Uh, they draw a lot of like Christian uh, terminology, like ne the ship is called like Nebuchadnezzar, the city that is to come is called Zion, and all these things. Um, but anyways, the premise of the movie is highly non-Christian. But the reason I like this movie is because it thinks outside the box. Now, if you watch the original Matrix, by the way, Matrix Two and Matrix Three are pretty garbage, but Matrix One is pretty is pretty cool. And of course, there's a lot of iconic scenes in that movie: Neo, Keanu Reeves. Great Canadian actor. Just kidding. He's not a great actor. He's terrible. But all of these things put together, great movie. There's this really great scene. Lawrence Fishburne, who plays Morpheus in the movie, who is sort of the wise sage, if you will, um, basically approaches Neo and he says, look, this is the reality of the universe, that everything is just digital information. You are right now plugged into a computer program known as the Matrix. And so everything you perceive as reality actually is virtual data. And even though you think you're feeling, seeing, you know, experiencing these things, it's all just fake. You're actually just plugged into a program. You're just a, you're just a pawn of these robots who are just using you for, um, for their own purposes. So he gives them this reality. And you can imagine Neo's life is shaken. And he's like, this can't be real. He shows them all the evidence. And he's like, no, this still cannot be real. Anyways, he's shocked. And in that shock, Morpheus sits down. And what he approaches him with are two options. You have the blue pill. And the red pill, the really famous scene, right? So he has a blue pill and a red pill. So if you take this pill, I forgot which one it was. I think it's the red pill that leads you to forget everything. Anyways, one or the other, that's not important. One of the pills, if you take it, you forget everything and you just live the rest of your life in the matrix, not knowing that it's the matrix and you just live your life as a fake, right? But you won't know that it's a fake. It's just, you know, you'll forget everything that I just told you. The other pill, you will not forget. 
And you will now commit your life, basically, to joining Morpheus and his rebels in rebellion against these artificial intelligence monsters and fighting the robot army, right? Uh, which is a lot worse, but it's the reality. The other is not reality, but in a sense, better, right? I think if you're a Christian right now, you can connect the dots of what I'm trying to parallel here. There is something that we all have in common. Pause. Hold the matrix thought. I'll get back to that. There is something that we all have in common. When I say all, I mean every member of the human race. I don't need to know you personally to know something true about you. Now, if I do know you personally, I certainly know this is true about you. We are all sinners. Every single one of us. Now, we might be different degrees of sinners, but we're all sinners. We're all imperfect, at least morally and ethically. We've done something wrong. How do I know this, you might ask? You don't know me, Max. Well, I don't need the Bible to tell me. I don't need anything to tell me. For me to know that this is true about you and I. Why? I know that you would never, ever, ever in your life be willing to expose every thought, every word, and every deed that you've ever committed or said or thought right in front of us. If we could project everything you've done, everything you've thought, and everything you've said onto a screen, would you confidently show that to the world? I don't think so. If you are, you have some whack, like weird standard of morality. Maybe you are willing to show that. Doesn't, it doesn't mean that we're going to come to the conclusion that you are morally perfect. At some point in our lives, we have all sinned before God. I've been trying to project that idea and, and, and give you that sense throughout the Old Testament readings, right? Especially in the prophecies, or the prophets, sorry. We are all sinners, guilty of sin, treason against God. Augustine, uh, one, of the four, one of the great uh, thinking fathers of our Christian faith, he fathered this doctrine, the doctrine of, the original, of original sin. And he wrote, and uh, he, he writes on this, or he writes on original sin like this. In the beginning, man's nature was created without any fault and without any sin. However, human nature in which we are all born from Adam until now requires a physician because it is not healthy. So he observed like a child and he realized a child does not need to be taught selfishness. It does not need to be taught um, self-centeredness. does not need to be taught to lie, to cheat, to do whatever it takes to get what it wants. The good news that we preach, the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ, only good to those that realize the bad news first that precedes the good news. That being that, being that we are all sinners in need of saving. You don't need a savior unless you understand that you need saving, right? Hence, the cross is an image that bears a Savior in whom a decision is to be made by every sinner to either follow or not follow Him, to put faith or not to put faith in Him. Now, yes, of course, I am not diverging away from, of course, the doctrine of election. Of course, faith is a gift given by God and God alone, that our active decision is willed by God's will alone. It is not our free will that makes a choice, but it is God who instills the free will to be able to make that choice out of a so-called will. Right? The cross is the dividing moment in history by which all mankind will now be judged. It doesn't change the fact um, that we still are called to make a decision. Now, the decision may be, of course, um, fueled by God's own will, right? And His universal decrees, which are mysterious to us in terms of intention well actually they're not it's for the glory of god it might be the details of it that might be mysterious to us but what we can draw from this is this understanding that there is a response that is uh that is entrusted on our end to to respond to the gospel to respond to the cross we certainly cannot conjure it a lot of people who argue for this right say oh it's our own free will it's only genuine if it's our free will I don't think it was Paul's free will that he was blinded on the road to Damascus. Right? It's Christ who finds us first. It's God who compels our hearts and regenerates us first to even be able to make that so-called decision for Christ. But it doesn't change the fact that we are 
proactively making some kind of action, right? I hope that makes sense. Because it's really key and critical that you understand this as we read this text. Because what we find here is Peter encountering Christ for the first time. For the next few weeks, at least just the next three, I want to journey with you through just a few, just a few of Peter's engagements with Jesus and look at four instances, starting with the one today that I personally resonate with, in the hopes that you will begin to understand Jesus as the Lord that I now see him as, and as a result, realize who you are in Jesus Christ. If I put the in Jesus Christ part aside, I think just finding an understanding and discovering Christ for who he is will help you understand who you really are. That you will learn to give everything to him. And we begin today with Peter's calling. The reason I say that, the reason why I say understanding God, understanding truth and the reality of who God is will help you understand the reality of who you are is just like the matrix thing. Until you understand and accept and receive the reality that this is the matrix, then your true identity and purpose within that reality cannot be truly fathomed or truly lived out until you realize you're in the matrix. Now, if you choose to live in the fake virtual matrix, unknowing of the reality, then guess what? Your job as an accountant in this company like Neo, you're not Neo. You're just living a fake life in a fake perceived reality. So here's here's where people get it wrong. People are always trying to discover what's the purpose of my life? Why am I on this earth? Why am I born? Why do I exist? Is not answered by finding something internally within you. Because you are a fallen and you are a mutable creature. What you need to rest your reality on is something that does not change. Something that instills purpose in you. So here's the irony of this. A lot of Christians are wondering, looking and, dis- and, and searching for the answer to that question of who am I? Instead of asking the right question that will actually answer that question. Which is, who are you God? For when you understand the creator, then you understand the purposes that he has. Which then gives you your purpose. And this is where we fault. And this is where Peter realizes this truth. He thought, I am a fisher of fish his whole life. And everything changes in his encountering with Christ. Right? So pay close attention. Verse 1. Jesus' fame has spread as a teacher and is now gathering large crowds. Large people, like swarms of people are following him. Here at the Lake of Gennesaret, this is just another fancy term for Sea of Galilee. Famous Sea of Galilee, right? If you go to Jerusalem today, you can still see it. In fact, you can go fish at the Sea of Galilee today and eat the fish that Jesus would have eaten with Peter. Not the actual, like, exact fish, just, you know, ancestors of the fish of Jesus' fishes. Anyways, verse 2. There were two boats out in the sea, but the day's work had finished. That's clear. The author wants us to know this. The day's work is done. The canvas is now set. The canvas is now set for Jesus to demonstrate his authority and to make his formal invitation to Peter and his brothers. So he gives us all this setting information to set up the story, the narrative. And and brothers and sisters, if you read these 11 verses and you walk away going, wow. I can't believe Jesus performed this amazing miracle of providing fish for the fishermen. Man, have you lost the point. The miracle is not the catch of the fish. The miracle is the catching of Simon Peter. The capturing of his heart. That is the miracle here. What what about God... (laughs) Catching hundreds of fish surprises you. You must have a very low understanding of who Jesus is, if that is the case. Verse 3, Jesus chooses Simon's boat of the two. And he teaches from inside the boat right off the coast. Now, there's a couple of reasons he would have done this. First of all, there's a large crowd. 
To get your voice projecting to this large crowd, you need to be in an area where your voice will echo and chamber. The surrounding mountains of that region and Galilee, if you go there today, you'll see the high cliffs will provide that setting. Also, being on a boat, you're more visible. Your voice will carry through the waves because winds obviously um, travel over water. So your voice will just carry better. It just projects better, right? So there's a sort of audible and decibel uh, uh, physics reason for this. But beyond that, I think there is a, again, just setting the narrative. Jesus is the one here initiating every proactive uh, decision, culminating in the calling of Peter, okay? Simon must have felt extremely privileged, right? Here's this prominent teacher who is coming to teach on his boat. He has been selected, even though he did not know much about Jesus at this point, he must have been keen to listen to what Jesus had to say, considering these large crowds that are following him. There was a great respect at the time for wise teachers called rabbis during Jesus' time due to Israel's circumstance and relationship with God at the time. I won't go into detail into that, but what we know from our study of the Old Testament, there's exile, God has gone silent, hundreds of years has passed since God has spoken, and in that time frame, a system has developed in, in Judaism where teachers are now relied upon for the teaching of God's word. They've resorted to legalism. The reason because they feel like they're in exile as punishment, which they're correct about. But the only way out of that exile is by legalistically following God's laws. The reason we're out of this is because we didn't do 613 Old Testament laws. That's one of the reasons. But beyond that, they just didn't understand the purpose of the laws either. So they totally misconstrue this. They go the total extreme route. Their intentions may have been good in the beginning, but they go the extreme to this. And they be, end up uh, developing a Pharisaic legalistic, situ- uh, uh, legalistic uh, system. And what results in this is the prominence of rabbis and teachers. Now, rabbis and teachers are, are sort of people in the time that were treated uh, what, the same way we would treat professors today right? Prominent teachers of the field of study that they're in. And teachers of the Old Testament law, because it's so important to the Jews of the time, was ever so important. Ever so important. And so Jesus, this young stud of a teacher coming out of their own hometown, a man of Galilee, right? This was prominent for them. This was stupendous for them. So here's this respect to have this man on my boat. That initiates the contact. Verse 4. Jesus speaks to the crowd and then singles out Simon and utters a command to let down his nets again for a catch. Now listen to how stupid this would sound to a fisherman. Okay? Jesus is essentially all but guaranteeing a catch if all you do is obey me. Jesus doesn't tell Peter to have faith in his words, or to trust him in his words, that a catch will occur. But he simply says, do as I tell you, and the catch will be. It is not predicated on anything Peter does. It's predicated on the word of Jesus that a catch will occur. But listen to how ridiculous This must have sounded to a professional fisherman. Think about it. I don't know anything about your job, okay? Okay, honey's in front of me. I'm just gonna use honey as an example. If I walked into Elevon tomorrow, I know their offices are closed. Let's just say I walked into Elevon tomorrow and he's he's called so many clients, like client after client after client, rejection after rejection after rejection. That's an average day, right? He's just getting rejected like hardcore. Like everybody, like no deal, no deal, no deal, no thanks. I walk in and I say, honey, just call one more. And you will get the biggest deal of your life. He would look straight at me and this, I know, honey. He wouldn't go, okay, Max, I believe you. No, this is what he would say. He'd be like, yo, man, I've been working all day. What do you know about what I do? Now he knows I can teach. I can preach God's word to some degree, but I don't know anything about what he does. But this must have sounded like that to Peter, right? Or at least the other fishermen, they must have been like, what do you know about fishing? Do you think we're just like playing around here? Right? 
This is my vocation. This is the means by which I have a living. And you're telling me, man of Nazareth, carpenter, son, that you know something about what I do? It must have sounded somewhat ridiculous. But Simon is different. He doesn't show disrespect here. Verse 5. He tells him the reality of the situation. He says, Master, respect, we worked hard all night and caught nothing. And that's where most people will stop. They will focus on the reality and the limitations that they have perceived in their own life. And they will stop there and they say, and they'll, they'll conclude with, I think I'm okay. But, he says, I will do as you say and let down the nets. Brothers and sisters, this is extraordinary. I don't know if Peter's a, a believer at this point, but here's, here's the difference between Peter's response and our response. Our response is, Master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing. How can you possibly help me? What will listening to you do for me? And this is how we live out our life. Almost every day. Because we limit our faith to what we perceive. I'm not saying you will catch an abundance of fish. But what I'm saying is, you either live your life in obedience to your own perceived limitations or to the word of God. Whether they make sense to you or not. And many times, at least in my reading of the Bible, it doesn't make sense. A lot of times the faithful thing to do is the nonsensical thing to do. That's why it's so hard to do. But he tells them the reality of the situation. And instead of demonstrating that disrespect, he demonstrates rather, Peter demonstrates rather, that he is acting in faith regardless of the reality. At Jesus' word, Simon says that he will obey at your word. The Greek word for master here is epistata, which is unique to Luke's gospel. Doesn't appear in any of the others. And holds the definition of commander, leader, or boss. It's a military term in a sense. Peter was willing to take orders from Jesus at his word. Many times our obedience of Jesus is predicated on condition. Right, We come up with a number of excuses to not do something. Mind you, Peter could have easily said many excuses here, but he didn't. I'm reminded just months ago when we studied Moses, remember the burning bush? Go, free my people. Excuse to excuse to excuse. Following Jesus in obedience is not to ignore reality, but to look beyond it. Realizing that no reality is impossible to the Lord for the, of the universe who cannot possibly be confined to the limitations of our own perception of the reality that He created. Not only did He create you and the mind you perceive reality with, He created reality itself. If God only acted, let me ask you this question, if God only acted within the realms of human possibility and perception and fathoming, then how, how is he greater than us? See, if God only worked within those parameters of sensical perception of our minds, then you know what we would complain about then as a sinner? We'd be like, you're nothing more than me. Why should I worship you? And then God works beyond the limitations and then you go, well, that doesn't make sense to me. <laughs> you see how we work? Our minds are so, so infidel. Like, they're so elementary. We're just sensation-craving creatures. 
We must learn to obey God at His word and nothing else. And at times that means doing the nonsensical thing. At His word there was light. At His word there was sun. At His word there was moon and stars and life and vegetation and water and all of what we see. So at His word, brothers and sisters, that is enough reason for you to obey. Verse 6, when they listened to Jesus, they caught not just fish, but a large number of fish. The catching of fish is a miraculous metaphor that demonstrates Jesus' authority over all creation. And it also is a metaphor of the call of Peter's life that will ultimately result in the abundant catching of men. When we say men, we don't mean the gender. Okay? So don't get too sensitive about that. The Bible just means all of humanity. People. Peter's obedience was predicated not on circumstance, but faith. And this is the ultimate identity marker of every believer, as at least we see in Paul's theology. Right? Paul's theology is just littered prominently with what? Faith is the marker of believers. And faith, of course, in the book of Ephesians is a gift of God that no one should boast. We obey because we believe. We don't believe through obeying. No one can prove anything in this way of thinking. But many of us try to do this. So be cautious in that. Verse 7, the catch was so great that Peter needed help in reeling in the hall. And it even caused the boats to sink. The catching that Peter will eventually do will not be done alone. For what will be reaped in the future in his life will be too great of an abundant catch, too great of a job for any one man alone. Never think that we are meant to be alone. From the very beginning, we weren't, right? For in His image, we were made. And God, I don't think, leaves His church, His body, with just one member. At times, it could feel like we are alone. But again, don't be a victim to your sensations, but rather know this. There are members of this body who are growing and maturing and sanctifying with you. They may not be with you presently in the physical form, but they are with you. For we are found in Christ Jesus. Verses 8 to 9, Peter took, his, took this miracle to be an act of God. That's his only conclusion. That's the only conclusion he could draw. At this point, he didn't understand that Jesus was God, but he knew that Jesus was an instrument of God. And so he shows respect to him by bowing at his knees. This is while the fish are still being hauled in. He's like, forget the fish. This dude is crazy. This respect to him, right, is so prominent here. The image is so obvious. This is the true moment of Peter's call where I think we see he now realizes and recognizes that something here about this person God is working. God is working before him, and he is now softened to not only listen to Jesus' words, but leave everything for him. So, brothers and sisters, once again, the miracle and the point of this narrative, these 11 verses, is not that a, like a bunch of fish were caught, but rather that Peter's heart was moved and compelled. And his life was changed. Right? That's the more important thing here. Peter's response that he is a sinner is reminiscent of the Old Testament prophets that we've already read. Remember Isaiah 6? For I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. This is the testimony of every believer. The realization of being a sinner and being in the presence of a holy God. We can't fully comprehend the miracle of this catch, but Peter, being an experienced fisherman, knew exactly how extraordinary this event was. Now, if you're a fisherman, by all means, you probably get it. I don't fish. I don't regularly fish. I don't care for fish. I like eating fish. Beyond that, I don't care about fish. filet fish sushi I'll, do, I'll eat all of that stuff. Anything else with fish, 
I don't really care. I'll watch Finding Nemo. Nothing else. Don't really care. I don't even like the aquarium. But th whatever you are, if you're a fisherman, you probably get it. I don't get it. I don't get the extraordinary nature of catching a bunch of fish. Okay, I don't even know how hard it is to haul fish into a boat. It looks hard. I'm not saying it isn't. But I just don't get it. But I'm sure it's hard. But Peter got it. And he knew how extraordinary this was. It was so extraordinary that he thought God was working. Right? I don't think we're all going to come to some realization of Christ's godliness through the catching of fish. Okay? But by whatever means, God will move your heart. If it is His will. And this brought Peter to his knees. Peter, in this elementary stage of knowing Jesus, grasped these truths. Jesus is of God. He's of the Lord. And he, was, and he himself, Peter, was a sinful man. It's powerful truth he grasped in that moment. And he let these truths humble him. Peter's prayer would evolve to become later in his life. Listen to his prayer later in his life. Draw near to me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. May this be your prayer always. Draw near to me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. May this be your prayer always. He doesn't forget that he's a sinner. But later in his life, he realizes that he wants to still be with this God. And the only means is Christ. Verse 10, Jesus then addresses all of Simon, Peter, James, John, and tells them that they will now catch men. This is building on the analogy of the fish catching, which means that they will bring people into a relationship with Jesus, leading them to the kingdom of God. They themselves are not the factor. They don't take any credit for it, but they are the instruments of God and the means by which, just like they are the fishermen who catch the fish, they too will be the instruments of God who will help in the netting and catching of the whole souls of men. Isn't that beautiful? I think it's a wonderful, wonderful analogy. Verse 11, they left everything. 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 You might ask, what does this everything entail? It's a bit of a, bit of a hyperbolic language, but this is what it would have entailed for them to follow Jesus. Jesus gave everything for us to be saved from sin, and what he asks in return is nothing short of everything we have and we are. God deserves all that we have. It's His. And to think that we can hold on to certain things and let go of other things while still following Jesus is ludicrous. God wants all of you. He wants all of your attention. He wants all of your worship. He wants all of your relationship. He wants all of you, always, because that is what is best for you. He gave everything. And our response should be the same. Brothers and sisters, sometimes when we think of giving everything or giving anything to God, we think of it as something we possess and we are relinquishing possession to God. No. There's nothing you possess in life. What you're actually doing is surrendering the idea that you possess. What you're giving up is the idea that you have ownership over anything. If you realize again who God is and who you are in light of the reality we live in in the Christian faith, you will quickly realize that possession is not a reality in the Christian life. You know what it is? It's a rental. It's stewardship. I could argue potentially that that's maybe the mistake that Eve made. I deserve to be like God. I will take and eat what is rightfully mine. We don't possess anything. So when we say give up everything to follow Jesus, it's not a literal giving up of, okay, you have this now, God. It's not that. It's surrendering the idea of possession and saying, oh Lord, for all I am and all I have is already yours. May your will be done. There was a tradition in the rabbinic teaching of the times and following of rabbis of this time which was considered the greatest of honors. So think of it this way. Like, if your professor came to you and said, follow me, and you said, you would probably say, no thanks, <laughs> right? Dr. Peterson comes to you and says, follow me. 
No thanks, Dr. Johnson comes to you. Hey, why don't you follow me for three years and live with me? No thanks, right? But at that time, following a rabbi, being called by a rabbi as a disciple of someone like this was the highest and greatest of honors in the Jewish tradition. These men were failures academic, academically. These are probation kids. These are kids that were suspended and expelled from school, basically. That's why they're fishermen. These are the lowest of the low in society in terms of academics. When you fail in academics, you result to doing trades. And that's exactly what these guys are doing. So Jesus saying, let me give you a second chance at being something. Something greater than what you are right now. You know what? That's why they're willing to go, I'm down. It's not too unlike, at least for me, if Elon Musk were to come to me and say, look, I'm not, an en- I'm not an engineer. I don't know squat about coding or whatever. But if Elon Musk walked through the store, came to me right now and said, Max, stop this stream, drop everything, follow me. I'd be like, hang on. Lord's Prayer, everyone. I'm gone. Seriously. I love you all. But if Elon Musk walks through that door, Elon Musk, if you're watching this, walk through that door. If he walked through that door and he said, Max, drop everything, follow me. I'd be like, down. He's not going to go, you got any plans today? I'd be like, no, you know, I got I to gotta eat dinner. I got to eat lunch with my church and then I'll follow you. No, I'd be like, stream's done. Pack your bags, let's get out of here. You know why? Because there's an understanding of that. Of what, it, that kind of honor, that kind of opportunity. And that's what's happening right here. I'm not saying that's right. I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't actually follow Elon Rios. But what I'm saying is, that's the mentality that these people had. The prominence of rabbis of this time was so extraordinarily high that it is like that of being called by the elite of society. And when they're called, that's why Peter is able to say, yes. But they also hit the jackpot because the rabbi that they followed was Jesus. Right? Jesus is offering something, something to these fishermen that in any other circumstance or situation, they would have absolutely no access to. So I want to highlight a few things as we conclude for today. Some key points that this text, I think, really reveals to me. Just a couple things, okay? Number one, Jesus is the one who starts our life as a Christian and completes our life as a Christian. He begins it, he ends it. What the Spirit begins, the Spirit will will finish. In Galatians, the Apostle Paul asks, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? What God begins in you, he will complete. Jesus called Peter, and he will make him a fisher of men. You don't make yourself a fisher of men. Jesus calls you, he will make you a fisher of men. Number two, we are not called into the life of a believer on our own. We are not alone. God has and desires a community for you. We are meant to exist and grow in community with fellow believers. This is the church. This is exactly why there's such an emphasis right now on like these lockdown parameters and why so many churches and communities that want have a longing to gather. Brothers and sisters, I've been very like like I've been an advocate of this, right? I want church to gather. The reason is, there's a theological reason for this. That's the purpose of the body of Christ. Or one of the, sorry, one of the functions of the body of Christ. Number three, we must realize who Jesus is in order to realize who we are. I began with that idea. The understanding of who we are and the realization of who we are and the purpose of our life stems from our understanding and proper understanding of Jesus and the Trinity and the gospel, and all these truths that come out in his beautiful word. He is good and we are bad. He is God and we are not. A proper worldview and understanding of Jesus breathes identity and ultimately purpose into your life. Otherwise, you will self-create identity. You will self-create purpose. You will self-create these things through sensation. And number four, to follow Jesus means to let everything of this world go. Okay, that's a like really like you know cliched way of basically saying this truth. The world is inferior to Christ in every way. And that is a reality you must understand. The apostle states in Galatians, but far be it from me to boast except in the cross, 
by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Three questions for you to ponder and explore as we conclude and end off. Three questions for you this week. Just think about these. Number one, what did Peter give up to follow Jesus? The text is initially implying the leaving of the miraculous catch of the fish, but Peter had, or sorry, uh, implying the leaving of the miraculous catch of fish, but Peter had family, friends, job, comfort, familiarity. He left it all to be thrust into three years of discomfort, strangers, unfamiliarity, and a whole lot of suffering with minimal security. Why? He saw in Jesus a greater purpose in life and a good enough reason to give up those things. He certainly did not foresee what was to come, nor did he know Jesus to the fullest, but he responded to that affectionate call of Christ, to the, um, to the effectual call of Christ, to become a fisher of men. There was a great risk involved, but Peter was compelled by Jesus' words. One of my favorite authors is C.S. Lewis, and he writes, and one of these writes, and a lot of his writings have changed my life. One of my favorite quotes from Lewis is this, Christianity, if false, is of no importance, and if true, of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. The conclusion that Peter drew was that following Jesus was worth giving up everything. Everything. Question number two, what is the cost of following Jesus for us? We're all content with giving as little as possible to gain as much as we can. That's how you know, economics works in life. We are like that of the young rich ruler of Matthew chapter 9. We want grace to be on sale like our favorite products and we treat God's mercy like a transaction. No, the cost of following Jesus is nothing short of everything. Like Peter, we must assess the things we have in life, the things we love, and we count the cost. Is life worth living and dying for those things, or is it better served living and dying for the Son of God? See, don't answer the question, what do, what do I want to live for? You know why? Because you're going to die. So here's the real question you should be asking. What am I willing to die for? That will instill a greater purpose in your life. If what you're living for is not something you're willing to die for, then stop doing it. Stop living for that. Live for the thing you're willing to die for. That's more important. We're asking the wrong question. Finally, what happens when we follow Jesus? There are a few promises that are indirectly, or maybe directly, implied to us here by the author Luke. Number one, verse 10, Peter will catch many men. You will. I love that quote that people always use to draw us to missions, right? The harvest is plenty, but the workers are few. And they're always like, workers are few, workers are few. But you know what I really want them to emphasize also? The harvest is plenty. Right? See, we always think like, oh, we need workers because that's the only way the harvest is going to come. No, the harvest is plenty. God did it. There's no shortage of a harvest. It's not Peter, help me catch men because I don't know if we're going to catch men. No, it's Peter, you will catch men. And you doubt sovereignty. I don't understand. Anyone who reads the Bible and doesn't discover sovereignty. Number two, Peter will do this catching along with others. It's implied. It's not to be done alone. And finally, all of this happens only as a result of following Jesus. So what happens when we follow Jesus? A lot of great promises are fulfilled and realized in our life. This is the call that Peter was given and the call he entered to or into on the day that he left everything to follow Jesus. So we too must do the same. So we're called into the same calling. I have come to understand the Christian life and the life as a disciple to be this. It's a walk. It's a progress towards God. Being like Him and understanding Him and loving Him more and more. Being like Him, so being transformed into the likeness of God, knowing Him more and more, I literally mean knowing Him, like intellectually, and loving Him more as a result. Just those three things, the progression of those three things in our life. Where are you on that walk? And are you truly willing to walk this path? Because Jesus says it's narrow and it's hard. Like the choice, that Neo is left with two pills in the matrix. There are only two paths. There are only two paths. You either live a lie, but it's easy. 
or you live the truth, and it's really hard. If Neo chooses to just live in the Matrix, that's a really short movie. Jesus himself stated in his Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 5-7, to that it is either the narrow or wide path. Only a few will find it, but I pray that you would join me on that narrow path that leads to the narrow gate. Let's close in prayer as we reflect and think about and thank God for this beautiful, beautiful word that he's given us today. Let's pray.